And as we've been seeing from what you say, that those can change very much from context to, to context. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, in a sense, quite useful to see a number of different ways of kind of dividing up the map of, of the issues. Um, there is the reality of the issues on the ground, uh, and there are different ways of painting the portrait of that reality, as it were. Just as you have a bowl of fruit and you ask a, a cubist painter to paint it and an impressionist painter to paint it and, and so on, they will all produce a painting of a bowl of fruit, but they all look at it from different uh, kind of lenses, different perspectives, uh, in a different sort of artistic context. Uh, I guess it's a little bit like that with uh, apologetics. Uh, knowing what your artistic context is and being able to kind of translate the uh, the truths, the arguments, knowing at a deep level the arguments, but then being able to translate that into what's relevant in this context, and how do I communicate this in a way that's appropriate for the audience that I'm engaging with? Um, because uh, it's one thing to know a very complicated philosophical argument for the existence of God, and another thing to be able to uh, communicate that to a 12-year-old, to a university student, to a university lecturer, to someone in the church pew. Uh, there's obviously this communication kind of level um, that has to be added on top of the sort of just knowing um, the arguments or or whatever. I'll uh, try and get through I'll see how much of this PowerPoint I get through but we will try and remember that coffee uh, is in sort of 20 minutes or so. This is the uh, very much introductory lesson and I'm going to try and uh, introduce a little bit about William Lane Craig, the author of the set text, talk a little bit about the apologetics canon that we've been talking about and uh, something about the nature and sort of understanding what what is uh, apologetics. Um, And I hope you'll notice at a couple of points in, in the teaching you'll probably notice that I disagree with some of William Lane Craig's views. Uh, and I hope that will encourage you, again, as we were talking about earlier, to read and to indeed listen to these lectures and so on in a critical frame of mind. Um, where I disagree with Craig, you may well uh, decide that you agree with Craig and not me, or that you agree with me and not Craig, or that you disagree with both of us, and that there is another way of, uh, of looking at the issue. Um, this is uh, not a matter of uh, you know, reading Craig and learning this as the you know, gospel truth. Uh, any of this attempt at doing philosophy, theology, apologetics is a fallible human attempt to uh, understand and communicate and defend uh, uh, an objective reality, the truth, uh, but we as, as finite uh, human beings, even with the help of God's revelation, we have to understand well, what is that revelation? How do we understand that? How do we defend it? What's the best way of doing that? How should we communicate it? And all of those attempts, of course, are are fallible human constructions uh, to be engaged with uh, uh, in the light of uh, that understanding. So, uh, this is Bill Craig, William Lane Craig. Um, He's a research professor of philosophy at a school of theology in California, in America. Uh, He's actually got two PhDs. He did uh, a PhD in philosophy uh, in England under a philosopher called John Hick. Uh, And then he went on and did a study uh, particularly on the resurrection uh, of Jesus 
uh, under a guy called Wolfhart Pannenberg uh, in Munich. Uh, so he's got a doctorate of, of theology. So he's got two uh, doctorates as well as various other uh, qualifications. So he's a, a very well-credentialed uh, guy indeed. Uh, he's particularly known for four areas of thinking that he's kind of specialised in. Um, one is arguments for theism, for the existence of God, uh, particularly a version of the cosmological, that's kind of causal arguments for the existence of God, um, called the Kalam cosmological argument, um, which we will look at later on in the course. It's basically the argument from the idea that the universe has a beginning uh, and that therefore it must have a beginner uh, for that beginning of the universe. But various other arguments as well, and uh, you were mentioning the debates uh, that you've watched, you'll know that he tends to uh, uh, defend a particular set of arguments again and again, although uh, as time's going on he's expanding his set of arguments that he's been thinking about and defending in public debate and so on. Also because of his studies uh, under Pannenberg, uh, um, uh, the resurrection of Jesus is a particular uh, subject of his. Uh, it takes an approach very similar to an, another American philosopher you may have heard of called um, Gary Habermas, uh, who has put his kind of stamp on this area of thinking in recent years as well. Uh, the philosophy of time is something that he's very much into, and he's written a number of books on the philosophy of time in relation to uh, Einstein's theory of relativity and so on. He's very much into cosmology because of his research into the Kalam cosmological argument, and that's kind of led him into the philosophy of time as well. Um, and then uh, the fourth field that he specialised in is uh, sort of philosophical theology, as it's called. That's thinking philosophically about the, the attributes, the nature of divinity, um, uh, particularly things about uh, understanding uh, the knowledge of God. He defends a particular view on the knowledge of God, what God can know and so on, whether God uh, is outside of time or is is within time in some sense. Uh, all of these kind of questions um, he deals with as well. So those are the kind of areas of specialism uh, of Craig. Uh, he says apologetics serves to show the unbelievers the truth of the Christian faith to confirm that faith to believers so it's, it's got a, a function for non-Christians but it also has a function for Christians in making us confident uh, in the truth of the gospel and to reveal and explore connections between Christian doctrine and other truths for me as a philosopher that's one of the most exciting uh, things uh, really uh, uh, here uh, in that um, for example, when you're thinking about arguments for God, what they really are is trying to uncover a connection between something that's not God and God. Uh, and if you can show that there is this connection, of course that then produces an argument for God. But what it also tells you is something about God's relationship to reality and something about the nature of, of God. Um, so it, it's doing multiple jobs uh, kind of at the same time. And it's exciting to start seeing the world through eyes that are going, oh yeah, God's, God's related to this reality in this way. And that means he's like this. And it tells us more about God and makes us more sort of confident uh, in bringing our sort of gospel perspective into the whole of, of life, I think. 
And uh, like I was mentioning earlier about Acts 17, uh, Craig is very much of the view that, that, that this is a biblical thing to do uh, after the, um, the Acts of the Apostles. He says it's evident that it was the Apostles' standard procedure to argue for the truth of the Christian worldview. Um, these PowerPoints will be available for you on the web in, 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 in the PDF or notes? Or? Yes, there's certainly uh, the, the lessons, the, these PowerPoints are based on the lessons that are, that are on the, the web and are being updated. Yeah. I'm also recording what I'm saying and I can, I can make available to you um, the, the raw recordings which I'll then I'll edit and put through some sound processes and things and put them on the websites as, as well so um, you'll have multiple forms of access to this information as yeah. it were and he also is keen on this idea uh, that it's the broader task of Christian apologetics to help create and sustain a cultural milieu, a bit of French there a cultural kind of view of things in which the gospel can be heard as an intellectually viable option um, that uh, apologetics, uh, particularly at the kind of university level, people might think, oh, that's very abstract. Why are you talking over the heads of lots of people and so on? Why do you, we should concentrate more on kind of street level kind of evangelistic use of apologetics? Why all this ivory tower stuff that only professors in universities are really going to be interested in? Craig would say, well, it's because the universities are a big shaper of the kind of feeling and a culture towards Christianity, the, the way in which people pick up through the media and so on that you were talking about. People go to university, pick up a certain view from their professors, go into their professional careers, um, dominate the media. Uh, that media tends to put out a certain view of things uh, that shapes how people feel towards Christianity. Like, oh, that's just something to be um, sort of laughed at or to be afraid of or whatever. Uh, or do they get this impression from the culture sort of at large, from the shapers and movers of the culture, that Christianity is at least, it's a serious view that you know, can be thought about and, and should have a kind of place at the table of cultural discussion as well. So uh, Craig is, is quite keen on people doing their PhDs and, and having stuff in the universities as well as uh, doing things uh, through the, the church and in a more sort of uh, uh, widespread evangelistic context. Uh, he says it's a very exciting time to be getting into this field. I, I agree. He says we're living at a time when Christian philosophy is experiencing a veritable renaissance, a rebirth. Um, reinvigorating natural theology, a time when science is more open to the existence of, of a, a transcendent creator, a designer. Uh, than at any time in recent memory, for example. And he says also a time when biblical criticism has embarked upon a renewed quest for the historical Jesus. We're no longer in the days of the sort of uh, late 19th, early 20th century uh, liberal German uh, uh, theology movement that was very sceptical about any knowledge of Jesus through the, through the Bible and so on. Um, we're now in the, the days of what's been called the third quest for the historical Jesus. Um, so in both those areas of, of God, natural theology and of revelation, so there are very exciting things happening in the academy. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the philosophy develops, so many Christians go into philosophy, is yes. that uh, uh, 
an American phenomenon? Or would you see that in the UK? So I don't see that mm. very much in Norway. We have some good Christian philosophers, but not the kind of a, a movement. Yeah. Or a I think it's being led by America. Yeah. And I think the rest of us are behind that that curve, as it were. But I think it is filtering through and filtering across uh, into uh, other cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yes, and, and, and I think the academic Norwegian philosopher suddenly will have to deal with mm. American philosophers because they see they have an academic level. Yeah. They're not used to deal with the question of God, but they see, well... Now we will have to. So, so even the secular Norwegian yes. will will be helped to see that to begin to discuss the questions. Like that's, that's right. Yeah. Uh, so, um, thinking a little bit about the kind of definition of apologetics, it's one of those areas where there's no actual agreement of what the definition of this thing is. It's like we we know it when we see it, but we we can't all agree how to define it. Uh, Craig uh, says it's that branch of Christian theology that seeks to provide a rational justification for the truth claims of the Christian faith. So it says Christian faith involves truth claims and apologetics is all about uh, giving rational, evidential, reasonable justifications, reasons to believe that those claims are indeed true. And it's a, a theoretical discipline and obviously an, an applied discipline uh, and you can kind of separate those out and study them separately but it's good to, to put them together uh, as we try to uh, what rational warrant or reason can be given for the Christian faith um, this, this book focuses on the theoretical yes. side and it's kind of up to people to apply this into the media, into their role. Although he does, at the end of each chapter in the book, include a little bit about practical application, where he talks about his experience of trying to use these arguments in debate and in conversation with people, stories about people who've become Christian through a particular argument or so on, Mm -hmm. as a sort of encouragement that this does actually pay dividends on the ground, not just a a theoretical subject. Of course, he, he models particular type of usage of that in his public debates and speaking and so on but that's of course only one way of using that material um, we were talking earlier about the ways more kind of creative uh, media centric ways in which you might be able to use that material uh, so he says apologetics isn't training in the art of answering questions or debating uh, there's a whole uh, you know, study of well, how to really do debates well and so on, that's not apologetics although it's useful to the study of, of apologetics, the use of apologetics, and so on. It's not the same thing as evangelism. We notice that this conference says there's a whole track on apologetics, there's a whole track on evangelism. They're not just regurgitating the same material in the two tracks. But there's obviously a close relationship between those two subjects. Uh, particularly, I think, and I agree with you, if you look at particularly the Acts of the Apostles in the New Testament, that these two things, evangelism and apologetics, are constantly going hand in hand. They're not the same thing, but they're, they're certainly uh, very close bosom buddies. Um, he also notes you can divide apologetics into what you might call warfare metaphors tend to get used quite a lot in apologetics and it's a bit disconcerting really um, because of one of my uh, favourite philosophers Peter Kreef from America says um, 
the the aim of uh, apologetics is not beating the other person. Uh, really. <laughs> it's not a war. Uh, it's uh, about both of us trying to find truth together. With all, uh, you know, both sides can be the winner in apologetics and should be the the winner in the end. Um, but he, he, this language creeps in. He says, divided into offensive or positive, perhaps a better word, and defensive or negative, not a particularly warm word, apologetics. Offensive uh, is seeking to present a positive case for Christian truth claims. Negative or defensive is obviously kind of responding to objections and alternatives, and saying why they, they don't work or don't overwhelm the rationality or the positive side of the case. And reasonable faith is a course in offensive, positive, Apologetics. So there's, for example, there's no nothing in here about dealing with the problem of suffering and evil. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if you get Craig's uh, more recently published, uh, a slightly uh, more readable, uh, lower popular uh, kind of book on guard, uh, you'll notice that uh, that book um, there's a big overlap between the two. Mm-hmm. Um, but on guard uh, deals with the problem of suffering in one of its chapters. Um, by taking out some of Craig's material on uh, theory of knowledge from the beginning of this book, which is perhaps one of the more complicated bits of the book, actually. Um, so I think it's a good substitution. I, I do think that it would be helpful for you to maybe also have the other book, the popular book, On Guard. Yeah. Uh, if, if you think this is complicated, and you might not think it's complicated, but if you do, the On Guard is, mm-hmm. is his attempt to, to popularize yeah. it and, and telling stories and so on. Which it's is, very well laid out. Yeah. And, and it's very helpful anyway. Yeah, it's a good summary. Translate it down a little bit. Yeah. 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 Find it in the, uh, we will check. We will see. Yeah. But I think this one should be there. Yeah. This one is... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've already sent it. Very good. Great. <laughs> Do you have the, the book already? You had it? Uh, no, I didn't write it. I have it only yeah. in a digital form. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And mm-hmm. then I'll buy it, but we are not allowed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't have the book? You don't know. So, but it will be here for a good price, so it's fortunate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, the apologetic canon. I like the occasional pun in my, my PowerPoints here. This is very funny. Um, <laughs> this is British humour. <laughs> it's very interesting. But lots of British humour is based on the ambiguity of language. Yeah. Uh, this Double word, <laughs> this word, of course, canon means this kind of canon, uh, but also canon in the, the sense we talk about the canon of scripture, uh, from a, a word just that's meaning the, the rule, the, the standard. Rod, measuring rod. Or, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so this course um, is structured around uh, what we think of seven key apologetic issues um, those being the following uh, issues to do with the nature of faith and knowledge uh, truth particularly in the context of a pluralistic culture or more sort of postmodern thinking about those subjects the issue of, of God and the nature of reality. Um, the most base, one of the most basic philosophical questions is what is the nature of ultimate reality? Mm-hmm. Um, what is the nature of reality around us? And are those two the same or different? Mm-hmm. Um, and just by asking those three questions, you will divide up a lot of different 
world views from, from each other. Um, if reality around us is just purely physical, material, and that is also the ultimate reality, then you're uh, a Western naturalist, a materialist. Uh, if you say ultimate reality is, is a mind of some kind, and reality around us is different from that, and kind of created by that mind, then you're some kind of a theist. If you say, uh, reality around us is just an, an illusion, uh, so there's nothing really physical, we just think there, there is. It's all spiritual, it's all mental in some case. And actually, ultimate reality, that we're one with ultimate reality, which is a sort of spiritual reality, not a physical thing. You're an Eastern pantheist of some kind. Um, so those questions divide up three um, the main major uh, worldviews. Issues about the nature of humanity and evil and how do we deal with evil and so on. Uh, sources of history, can we know history and how can we know history, particularly of course in relation to claims about revelation from God. The identity and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, who was he and particularly did he really rise from the dead and what does that mean? And uh, justification of ethics. Uh, this is not so much issues about what things are right and wrong, you know, is it right to do stem cell research or not? Mm-hmm. That's sort of applied ethics. This is a, a sort of deeper, more fundamental question about, well, is there any such thing as right or wrong at all? Um, how, if there is, how do we explain that reality? Um, if there is, how can, how can we know that there is such a thing as right and wrong in any particular case. Not, not just what is right and wrong here, but is it even possible to know what's right, what's wrong, and how? So on those kind of more deeper um, eth- questions about the nature of ethics. Just comment on that. Because, yeah. because very often uh, we, at least in Norway, we experience the, the attitude of, of, um, of Christians being morally on the no, no ground. They're conservative, they're negative, they're judgmental, arrogant. Many people see Christians as arrogant uh, and negative, mm. and they're against. The issue now is, is homosexual uh, partnership, mm. which is kind of generally accepted. And some conservative Christians still have uh, concerns, and they're seen, seen as very hard and, and negative. Uh, and then this is a moral uh, moral judgment on Christians right? and what this uh, this last one helps us, it really helps us ask the question, well how do we really uh, argue that, that some things are right and wrong because they use uh, morality as, a, as an argument against Christianity and we need not just to say that well what we think is right in terms of, of what you think of marriage, what you think of, of life and death, abortion, we need to, to go deeper and ask, well, how can we know what really is right and wrong? And we ask them, how can they argue, how can they justify their opinions? And that's what we're doing in, in, in the media ethics course I'm doing now, which, which really challenge also the non-Christians to justify their opinions. Because normally it's just the Christians who have mm. to argue. 
that everyone would have to argue for their own position here, which brings us back to the big questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, recent publication by an American philosopher, Christian philosopher called Chad Meister, uh, in a book called Building Belief, Constructing Faith from the Ground Up. I hope it might be on the, the bookstall. Um, he um, talks about what he calls the apologetic pyramid. And he puts these five topics in a, in a pyramid kind of arrangement. And it goes from very general kind of worldview questions. He starts with you know, what is truth and how can we know it? Looking at alternative worldviews and critiquing those to kind of clear space in a kind of Francis Schaeffer kind of way for thinking about a Christian worldview. Arguments for God, establishing that some sort of general theism is true. Moving on to talking about revelation and Jesus. You know, the resurrection is a particularly important part of that. And getting to, at the top, the more you're getting more and more specifically Christian as we're kind of going up here to how that feeds into the gospel and presenting a gospel, the gospel in an understandable way to an audience and so on challenging them to respond to it obviously um, so I quite like that way of cutting up the territory uh, going from the, the more general to the more specifically Christian um, this is a very complex diagram, but just to prove <laughs> that all of the seven issues that we highlight in the course relate to his way of cutting up the field. It's just a kind of different way of dividing up the territory. So, uh, you know, if we're looking about faith and knowledge, that obviously relates to truth. Justification of ethics would re- relate to worldview issues. Uh, sources of history would be things about revelation and, and so on. Um, so there's multiple ways of cutting it up. Um, I think. It's time to stop for coffee. Yeah. And could I just have a, have a coffee yeah. on, on if you turn back one slide? Um, because this, these, these two here are maybe not so obvious topic, topics, but the, the reason they are put in there is that very often faith, uh, 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 Christian faith, mm. is defined into a box of very subjective reality. You have objective science, and then you have faith. Hmm. And so already when people start to think about what faith is, it's part of the subjective area of reality, where there cannot be objective truth, just your truth. So that is one, one reason we brought up this, because in our culture, faith is seen as very subjective, uh, while science is very different with objective facts. And I think that, that very view has to be challenged from a Christian perspective. Mm-hmm. Also, the, 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 the question of pluralism and truth is, of course, the, the given so many worldviews, so many religions, how can the Christians say that they have the truth? Mm-hmm. It sounds arrogant. And we need to deal with that uh, very important question. That is a question that almost always will be raised. Because we, if we believe truth, all the number of, of alternatives really uh, seems to go against it. So that's mm-hmm. the, the reason for the top two ones there, uh, as we put it, yeah. while the others follow more naturally from, from general apologetics. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So perhaps after coffee I'll yeah. ra- round out how I would describe apologetics and linking it a bit more to Francis Schaeffer mm-hmm. and so on. Well, that's a relatively short bit, but we should stop there for coffee otherwise it'll disappear so let's try and pick up from where we were
Um, I think I might say a few words. Bill was saying to me over coffee that it might be useful if I said a few words about uh, philosophy of education, actually, in different uh, perspectives on, on education. Um, picking up on what I was saying earlier about how um, this isn't a, for us a matter of sort of learning and regurgitating the content of Craig's book as if that's the way to do it and that's the thing to learn. Um, there is one model of education which. Uh, a very traditional kind of educational model uh, where it's very much a case of, you know, I'm the teacher, I've got the knowledge, you are the, the blank slates of the pupils, I will uh, communicate, thank you very much, uh, the knowledge that I have to you and you will learn it and then regurgitate it for the exam. Um, which uh, might make you learn all sorts of stuff, but it doesn't uh, encourage what we would call uh, kind of critical thinking, uh, uh, independent uh, research, uh, and so on. Uh, particularly, uh, sort of in the 1960s, 70s, some educationalists moved to what's called a much more pupil-centred learning where uh, the, the educational institution just provides a, an arena in which the, the pupil will go off and uh, study whatever they're interested in. The sort of schools where they don't have lessons but they just have, oh, uh, you know, Tommy is, is interested in doing art today so he can go off and do art and uh, Mandy wants interested in nature so she'll, she'll go off and do a nature ramble and they'll just pursue whatever interests that they have and the, the pupil will flourish given this uh, huge amount of freedom. Um, which also has its uh, benefits, um, very individual, individualised, treating everybody as an individual, as we all are, and so on, um, but not particularly structured uh, and not particularly um, giving any benefit of the uh, greater wisdom of people who have greater wisdom to people who have, who have less. So there's this kind of happy medium, uh, I think, in between the two, um, which is uh, much more a model where um, that says uh, we together uh, are in search of the truth uh, and we all uh, have different uh, expertise uh, some of us have more expertise in a particular area than others and vice versa uh, as we saw with the computer earlier and so on um, and we will together try and uh, kind of communally find out uh, the truth and uh, share with one another uh, our perspectives and what we know uh, and kind of do that uh, together um, which uh, I think is myself really the, the best model encourages um, critical thinking uh, respects the, the individual as, as an individual um, it's not just about sort of rote learning and so on um, but it's about entering into a dialogue together in, in search of uh, the truth, so that the truth is standing over over me as a, a, a teacher and over you uh, as a pupil, and we are all together kind of responsible to the truth rather than it sort of the truth is sort of on my side or something that I sort of don't really care about, and you just going to go off and wander around the place and might stumble into. Um, to see those sort of differences in educational uh, philosophies. So hopefully we we kind of strike a, a happy medium um, there. Uh, apologetics in 3D will hopefully find a, an opportunity to um, 
perhaps photocopy a paper I've written on this recently that I'm trying to get uh, published but haven't uh, got published yet um, which uh, tries to kind of give a, a more rounded uh, context uh, view of apologetics than perhaps the, the one that we were looking at from Craig earlier which was very much concerned just at the, the theoretical uh, intellectual level of the, the truth claims and the arguments and so on. Uh, we mentioned Francis Schaeffer earlier. Here's a picture of him. It's very uh, little bit in his pipe and sort of uh, what you think of when you think of a philosopher. Francis Schaeffer. Um, in a book called The God Who Is There, he said this, the purpose of apologetics is not just to win an argument or a discussion not the aim but that the people with whom we're in contact and he was very keen on emphasizing that the relational element of actually doing apologetics practically the people with whom we're in contact may become Christians and then live under the lordship of Christ in the whole spectrum of life but what we're communicating here of course it is a, a worldview it is a, a thing that you can set out in propositions and defend and communicate and so on but of course it is so much more than that uh, and he was very keen on, on kind of keeping in mind the so much more um, and how that uh, impacts from both sides on the, 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 the communication aspect of, of apologetics uh, another good quote from Schaefer says I'm only interested in an apologetic that leads in two directions and the one is to lead people to Christ as saviour and the other is that after they're Christians for them to realise the lordship of Christ in the whole of life sort of whole uh, we're not just uh, addressing ourselves to pure intellects or calculating machines that we can sort of give them the the right set of propositions and they will uh, agree with the conclusion and then our job's kind of done as it were we're of course relating with people and trying to draw them into an entire um, way of being a, a way of life or a spirituality uh, as I would call it so I've um, been developing uh, this sort of broader definition of apologetics uh, which has got three elements to it uh, and each of these three elements is itself made up of three sub-elements. So sort of three threes. Uh, and I'll take a look at each of those uh, in turn as we go through. So uh, I think a good definition of apologetics is this. It's the, the art, it's not just a science, but an art, of persuasively advocating Christian spirituality across spiritualities that's the first element so the, the, we have a, not just a world view at a sort of intellectual level but a, a whole way of being that's built upon that that we're trying to communicate to people who have different world views and because of that different spiritualities different ways of being um, and every level of that whole spectrum of life that Schaefer was talking about actually has an impact um, on that process as 
So we're communicating, uh, advocating Christian spirituality across spiritualities, and we're advocating Christian spirituality as objectively true. Uh, the emphasis that, that Craig puts on, but I think also not just as objectively true, but as also objectively good, and uh, even as objectively beautiful as a way of life. That Christianity is not just true, it's good. Uh, it, it's a beautiful thing to um, be a follower of the Lord, and so on. And we do that through the responsible use of rhetoric. And as we'll see later, rhetoric has three elements to it in the, the classical tradition. Um, rhetoric is a, a term that's kind of got a bad name in our culture. Um, it tends to be reserved for um, just the uh, sort of manipulative use of language, sort of clever manipulation of an audience. Uh, we might say to a politician at a rally, oh, they're just, they're just using rhetoric. Um, that's uh, a very sort of uh, jaundiced modern take on what rhetoric is. Uh, not what I mean here at all. Um, we'll go back to the, the classical Greek roots of that, and particularly something that you can see uh, used in the work of St. Paul um, as well. So there's these elements to go through. Christian spirituality, what is spirituality? It's true, good and beautiful, and looking at rhetoric as well. Should we stop there for any clarifications or questions? Hi, Chris. Okay. Uh, and I'd like to ground this in looking at... Um, this is almost like uh, the apologist's Bible verse. This is uh, the apologist's memory verse, I think. And it would be really good to unpack this. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Uh, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. And of course the term that we translate from the Greek as answer here is apologia. Which was a term that meant a reasoned defence. It was particularly a term from the law courts. Uh, if you were getting your lawyer to defend your client in court, you gave your apologia. So he's talking about a, a reasoned defence to people who asked for the reason. There is reason for the, the hope that we have as Christians, but there's also sort of talking here about the personal context of that communication. It's something about the, the attitude with which we do it. As Schaefer's saying, it's not just about winning the argument. There's no point in winning the argument if we lose the person, as the phrase goes. Do it with gentleness. And respect, and actually, I I'm, I'm, don't know much about Greek myself, but I'm told by the Greek scholars I've read that the term gentleness here is referring to our attitude towards the, the person that we're engaging with, whereas the term respect here is actually talking about our attitude towards God in the process. So, out of our respect for God and who He is and His nature, we act in a certain way towards the people that we're communicating in a, in, a, in a gentle manner that's not about sort of bashing them over the head with a, a Bible or an argument or whatever. Yeah. Now, 
a bit of an analysis of this. So first of all, notice, notice that this verse in Peter talks a lot about actions. It's you've got to give, to give, do this. It's, it's a very you've got to do something. It's a command from Peter. Um, and it's a command, of course, given to all Christians. Now we might all do that at different levels of sophistication. Of course, we're not all called to be uh, professional apologists. But in a general sense, all Christians are here told to be apologists. So there's action involved, but there's also attitudes involved here. Peter's talking about, first of all, the reason for the hope that we have, our trust, our hope in Christ. Doing it with an attitude of gentleness to the people, of respect towards God. So it's very much about attitudes that ground our actions because we're respectful of God, because we love God we love our neighbour and so we're gentle with them when we're trying to convert them or convince them of the Christian's perspective and so on 1 Peter 3.16 very important verse I think Yeah. he's also talking a lot about the intellectual level of course here, beliefs um, the worldview level of things. He says, be prepared to give an answer. This would be something you, you should have sort of thought a bit about beforehand. Maybe it would be a good idea. Um, an answer, an apologia, the reasoned defence. And again, he talks about the reason for the hope that we have. So we end up saying that because we have certain beliefs, that we think Christianity is true, Jesus is the truth, the way and the life, and because we have certain attitudes towards what we think is true, because we're positive, uh, positively responding to who we think Jesus was and who God is, rather than responding negatively like the demons, you know that verse that says, do you, you, know, do you believe? Well, even the demons believe and tremble. The demons know that Christ is the Son of God, they just hate his guts. We believe Jesus is the Son of God, but we love him. So, because we combine a certain positive attitude with these beliefs, that leads us to acting, wanting to do this, to share this, to communicate this, to defend this thing which is true, but which is good and which is beautiful as well. So, what kind of version is this? What kind of version? version? I think this is from the New International Version, the NIV these particular quotes now I think actually if we just concentrate on this here this is a general definition of what a spirituality is whatever spirituality that is if this is the spirituality of a Buddhist or the spirituality of a, a materialist like Richard Dawkins or the spirituality of a Muslim or whoever to have a spirituality is to have a set of things that you believe are true. Even if you're a postmodernist who says, you know, there's no such thing as truth. Well, that means that one of the things that you believe is true is that there's no such thing as truth. Uh, which you should be able to see is a pretty big problem right at the get-go Oops, for that particular worldview. But they do believe something. Um, 
those beliefs will be combined with a set of attitudes. Because you believe the world is a certain way, you'll have certain attitudes towards that reality. You'll relate to it in a certain way. You'll make certain choices, um, have certain emotional responses, and, and so on as well. And because of that, you'll tend to behave in a certain way. So if I'm a, a naturalist, I believe that, that matter is all there is and there's no God, um, I'm, of course, not going to uh, end up praying or <laughs> uh, you know, various spiritual actions that would, would follow through from that. If I believe that there is a God and I hate him like the demons, I'm not going to end up trying to act in such a way as to advance the kingdom. Indeed, I'm probably going to end up acting in a way as to try and restrain the kingdom of God. But this is just a general definition of spirituality that different spiritualities will unpack, fill out in different ways. And this is the worldview level. But there's these built on top as well. So you can think of a spirituality as a way of relating to reality. That's what a spirituality is. Uh, relating, uh, you can pick out particularly important things that spiritualities tend to focus on, how we relate to, how we relate to ourselves, how we relate to other people, how we relate to the world around us, to the environment, how we relate to what we think of as ultimate reality. It's a particularly important one. But it's how we relate to reality, or at least what we think reality is, through our beliefs, our worldview beliefs, our attitudes and our behaviour that follow uh, one upon another. And actually, to put that same diagram in a, in a circular form, these things become a kind of self-reinforcing loop. Because I believe certain things and I have certain attitudes, I tend to act in certain ways. But because I tend to live my life in a certain way, that tends to, to reinforce what I believe. I get in, the, I get in the habit of thinking, seeing the world in a certain way, of behaving a certain way. The more I do it, the more ingrained that way of, of thinking and feeling and, and choosing uh, and, and acting becomes. Which is why it can be very difficult to get someone to change their worldview, to change from one spirituality into another. Um, because these are very much at the core of who you are as a person, your spirituality, whatever that is. Um, this is particularly inside of Schaeffer's, when he put an emphasis on saying, evangelism, apologetics, really has to start with understanding the other person's worldview, their spirituality, and helping them to explore what they believe and so on so that they might see problems with their spirituality, become dissatisfied, not just intellectually, but um, existentially, as the French philosophers would say. Um, dissatisfied with their way of, of seeing and living in the world, so they become more open, more welcoming of a better alternative. They're much more likely if they're saying, oh, well, I've found lots of problems with the way that I'm thinking about things and what, how, how that makes me live and I feel uncomfortable with that. I, I, it would be great if there was some, some better way of thinking about reality, some better way of living. 
And then you come along and say, hey, I've got this wonderful, great way of thinking about reality that makes much more sense than this and holds together and doesn't contradict itself from the first step, like the postmodernism, and much easier than someone who's completely happy and they think at least they're satisfied. They're getting along fine. I'm fine. I don't need anything. Why should I even consider changing my mind about this kind of thing? I'm, I'm happy. You know. I don't think any of that should be too surprising if we remember, um, and this is where I really stole that definition of spirituality from, when Jesus replies to the question about what's the greatest commandment. And he says, well, it's to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, um, your attitudes, heart, particularly in the ancient world. Uh, it's a bit of a flexible term, but you certainly shouldn't think just in terms of emotions, as we would tend to restrict the term to today. It's much more about your, your attitudes, your, your choices that you habitually make, um, the decisions that you make. You decide, you choose with your, with your heart. With all of your heart and with all of your mind, of course, including your worldviews, and with all of your strength, i.e. what you do, how you live in the world. Um, it's from Mark 12, um, 30. Uh, it's mentioned in several different Gospels, and there's slightly different wordings in the different Gospels. Um, but in uh, the reply, in one of the versions, the, uh, the scholar who asked the question is the one who actually gives the reply that mentions heart, mind, and strength as the three. And all of them are referring back to a passage in the Old Testament um, from the book of Deuteronomy. Chapter 6, verse 5. Um, so all of them are referring back to that as well. And it's very clear when you compare them and look at the, the Old Testament version as well um, that these three elements are the principal kind of categories. You can also see it in the writings of Paul. Um, this is from Colossians chapter 3, 15 to 17. Um, he puts a certain emphasis on it because of the pastoral nature of, of the people that he's, he's writing this letter to. But you can see here, he says, Let the, the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the word of Christ, think of John's Gospel where Christ talked about as the word of God, in the Greek, the logos, a Greek philosophical concept that meant the rationality underlying reality. Uh, Christ is the rational communication of ultimate reality, the Word of God. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. So there's a lot there about rationality, teaching, knowledge, wisdom. And he goes on, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name, in the nature, in the character of the Lord Jesus. So there again, Paul is talking about peace in the heart, your attitudes, doing it in the, in the character of Christ, your attitudes, because of what we, we know, what we teach, because of the rationality that's been communicated to us in Christ, and doing things, whatever we do, in word or deed. So these three categories are very much, you can see it um, from the Old Testament, from the New Testament in Jesus, from the New Testament in Paul, and other places as well. So we could unpack Christian spirituality, 
as loving God with all of your beliefs, attitudes, actions, and loving your neighbour as yourself, loving your neighbour with all of your heart and mind and so on as well. Hence doing apologetics, uh, not in order to make ourselves feel good or puff ourselves up with knowledge, as Paul might have said, uh, or to um, beat the other person and win an argument, but because we've got something that we think is wonderful and we want to share that with other people. Because the more people that share in something wonderful, the better. It's, um, you know, the gospel is not something that, that when we share it with other people gets cut into smaller and smaller bits and we all have less of it. Lots of things, you know, if I share, share a cake, the more people I share it with, the smaller slices I have to cut it into, the less we all get. And that becomes less enjoyable the more that we have to share it. Um, but there's a, another sense of sharing. Um, communion. We have a communion in something where uh, if we are all sharing in the enjoyment of a meal together, we do all share in that enjoyment. And actually the more people that we can have that enjoyment with, the greater our, our enjoyment, the greater our communion uh, can become. Um, the more children a family have, it's not like each of those children now gets a smaller percentage of the love available from the family. Um, you don't have to divide it up like a cake. Uh, the more members of a family you have, the more love and joy and communion uh, there is. Okay? Uh, anything on, on those topics before we switch to another topic? Grand. Good. I'm just asking, yeah. what have you um, arranged now about break times and things? Uh, lunch is at 12 o'clock till half 12. Bjorn basically said keep going, keep the stuff on the resurrection till the end of the week, so I'm not going to do any of that today. But um, doing this, um, and I think the material on um, probably the arguments for existence of God or maybe uh, we could chat about it maybe the absurdity of life without God it depends what you're most interested in uh, I think he was saying after lunch to do the looking on the, the yeah, web I was, stuff I was 15 minutes after lunch before I head off to, uh, at 12.30 right 12.45 that's okay okay so after lunch we'll yeah, just have Chris and then quarter of an hour on that and then on. Yeah. yeah, that's fine. It's yeah. So of course it's a very intensive day to do it, try and cram a course like this, and, and we're not even teaching the whole the whole thing. But um, yeah, so uh, no, that's that's okay. Keep yourself lubricated with water and your brains in gear. Mm. So rhetoric, um, the the best place to go for this is the famous Greek philosopher Aristotle, who uh, wrote. Uh, very famous text on this area, uh, which was very influential, as a lot of his writing was for, for hundreds and thousands of years, and still is today. Um, and he defines rhetoric um, as the power to observe the persuasiveness of which any particular matter admits. And one thing I want to draw your attention to about that definition is it's not about a subjective, the ability to make something appear persuasive. 
uh, to manipulate your audience into believing something that isn't so because of the power of your language and communication. Um, it's not to manipulate them in the, the way that um, the sophists that Plato was so keen on criticising um, or uh, some of the, the cultures that Paul, when he went to, um, when he talks about, I didn't come to you with persuasive words and so on in one particular instance, um, was talking against this uh, subjective tradition of, of sophistry, of rhetoric. It was just about making a fancy argument, winning the day, never mind what you were arguing for. For Aristotle, uh, rhetoric is about an objective reality. It's about being able to see what is persuasive about something in different categories and to communicate that well to an audience. Um, so rhetoric encompasses the principles, the good practice of how to best communicate such observations of what is persuasive to an audience. And this is a particularly uh, good quote from his Aristotle's book, Rhetoric. And I've put in here some of the, the classical terminology for these three classical elements of rhetoric. It says, of the, the modes, the ways of persuasion furnished or given by the spoken word, there are three kinds. Okay, the first kind, which we call ethos, um, that is a term we still use, we might talk about the ethos of a company. Uh, company ethos, the workplace ethos, uh, depends on the personal character of the speaker. The second, which is called pathos, um, think of uh, Tchaikovsky's uh, pathetic symphony. Um, it is, of course, not saying that this is a pathetic symphony. It's terrible. Uh, it's saying it's a moving symphony. It's pathetic, it's got pathos to it. It really moves the listener. Uh, we're putting the audience into a certain frame of mind, getting them to have a certain attitude towards something. Really. And the third, logos, and notice this is the Greek philosophical term that St. John picks up on, and the beginning of John's Gospel. The third, the logos, on the proof, the rational argument, the proof provided by the words of the speech itself. So we have ethos, the character. Um, you're much more likely to buy into what I'm saying if I seem to be a trustworthy, reliable kind of guy who knows what he's talking about and is not trying to just dupe you and kind of flim-flam you. Uh, if I look like I'm a used car salesman that you really wouldn't want to buy that car off him because you think it's probably got something dodgy happened to the clock and it's probably made of two cars bolted together. Uh, you're unlikely to buy the car from me if I give that impression as a character. So our characters as ambassadors for Christ is very important in communicating here. Putting the audience in a certain frame of mind, the pathos, the attitude that you communicate and try and draw people into, and of course the rational logos, the argument that's being communicated. Um, there's, and these th three things should as much as possible integrate together um, there's very little point in communicating a wonderful argument to people if it's so dull and un uninteresting and unapplied and they can't see its relevance and you are an unappealing character 
um, that they're not really listening anyway. That that does nothing, however wonderful the argument is. But likewise, if if you really stir the audience up and they're, they're they're really attracted to something, but you're not giving them any content to what you're saying, anything that really grounds it in reality, in knowledge, in wisdom, then you're selling them short as well. Um, so a lot to be learned from a. Uh, Alistair McGrath, in, in some of his books, English Theologian, talks uh, a bit about the way that evangelists should learn from Aristotle. And certainly, I think Paul, whether or not he learned from Aristotle, he was a very educated man, came from a university city and so on, certainly this tradition of classical rhetoric carried on by um, Roman scholars like Cicero and so on, seems to me to be in Paul, that he had a working knowledge of this, particularly when he gave his speech before the, the Areopagus Council in Athens. Um, that was a formal invitation to, prevent, to present a kind of formal Greek apologia speech. Uh, and he did it very well in the categories of that culture. And indeed here in this quote from 1 Peter 3, uh, no sorry, from um, Colossians chapter 4 verses 4 to 6, which has a great deal of similarity with 1 Peter 3.15 at the end, um, he not only mentions all the three elements of classical rhetoric, he mentions them in the same order that Aristotle mentions them. Uh, it's just uh, an interesting parallel at the very least. He says... Uh, giving advice about evangelism. I mean, he's been asking for prayer for his evangelism and then he kind of gives advice in the process to the church about evangelism. And he says, When you are with unbelievers, make, always make good use of the time. Be pleasant. Be pleasant. He's also talking about the ethos, our character. And hold their interest when you speak the message. Get, get the audience interested. Good pathos. Choose your words carefully and be ready to give answers to anyone who asks questions. Yeah, fascinating to see Paul there and Peter in 1 Peter 3.15 give answers to anyone who asks questions. Um, remember that phrase from Francis Schaeffer about apologetics being honest answers to honest questions. There are, of course, dishonest questions. Questions that we could describe as what a philosopher would call a, a red herring or just an objection put up in order to try and flummox you so that the, the conversation can come to an end, or uh, we're not really in a process of seeking the truth together here. It's just a, become a, an academic debate or whatever. But there are honest questions, and to honest questions we should be prepared to give honest answers. So Colossians 4, verses 4 to 6. It's very important as well, uh, and in relation to 1 Peter 3.15, very interesting. Okay. Uh, so back to 1 Peter 3.15, and we've got this diagram of beliefs, attitudes, actions. Ta-da! Those match up with logos, pathos, ethos. And relate to slightly different bits of the text, but those three relate so you can see here, uh, be prepared to give an answer, obviously logos, uh, for the hope that you have, we're communicating something that's hopeful, that's great, that's good news, pathos, doing it with gentleness and respect, the ethos that we communicate it out of. So those tie up. Uh, 
very short word about the, what's called the transcendental values. This, this isn't about uh, Buddhist transcendental meditation. Uh, it's a Greek term, uh, something transcendent, some transcends something, goes beyond. The transcendent values are those values that go beyond particular things in the world because we can judge any particular thing in terms of this transcendent value. So anything can be judged in terms of its, its goodness or lack of it, its beauty or lack of it, the truth or otherwise of a, of a claim. Any claim can be judged for its truth or not. Um, and obviously within the classical philosophical tradition and within the biblical tradition as well, these values are held to be uh, objective realities, not just a matter of what's true for you might be different from what's true for me. We've got different opinions, but there's no question of one of us being right and one of us being wrong if we differ. We just differ. Um, that's kind of a uh, postmodern kind of uh, view. Um, but actually, a little quote here from an English philosopher called John Cottingham writing in the Times newspaper. He says, To everyone's surprise, the increasing consensus among philosophers today is that some kind of objectivism of truth and of value is correct. And actually, a, a bit of a return to this traditional view of these things. Truth, logos, beauty, pathos, goodness, ethos, says carry with them the sense of a requirement or a demand. The true is that which is worthy of belief, because it's true. Um, great phrase uh, from the American Catholic philosopher Peter Kreeft talks about what, it, what does it mean to understand something and he plays on the, the English language there uh, in quite a clever way and he says to understand something is to stand under its authority as the truth to shape, to determine what you believe about it so I only really come to understand something when I can grasp it and appreciate it as the truth in such a way that it's determining what I believe. It's not up to me to decide what's true and what's real. Reality doesn't answer to me. I, as a seeker of truth, answer to reality. And that's true understanding. Um, I think that's quite a useful play on language to kind of unpack this objective idea of, of truth and what we're going on about. So the truth is that, that which is worthy of belief, the beautiful is that which is worthy of admiration. It's not just that you do, do admire it, there's still another question of, well, is that a good thing that you are admiring that sunset, that sculpture, that painting, that TV show, that film, whatever, or a bad thing that you should have certain uh, ascetic appreciation of it. The beautiful is that which is worthy of admiration. It can be true to say that sunset is beautiful. And the good is that which is worthy of choice. Worthy of, worthy of choosing. Um, I think in um, I can't remember the verse but in Philippians uh, Paul talks about if anything is good or noble or true or worthy of admiration, think about these things. Yeah. 
it's very clear that for Paul as well it's not if you happen to like something well then you know whatever floats your boat <laughs> it's whatever is admirable noble true good just so on and actually it's interesting to see uh, after the sort of postmodern wave of the, the 70s 80s and so on a bit of a return to this view of these three transcendental values of truth goodness and beauty uh, so here's a lovely chart uh, it was a bit of a eureka day for me when I'd been researching these different areas and I suddenly noticed that oh, they all line up with each other this is all part of the same thing eureka I didn't jump out of the bath naked and run down the street like a certain Greek that we could mention fortunately uh, but I, I did get excited but then I am a philosopher um, so <laughs> over here we have uh, this is, I think, a really good summary of what we're trying to do in apologetics. A very rounded view of what I call apologetics in 3D. 3D cinema is all the rage now, so take apologetics in 3D. Um, we have our own spirituality, Christian spirituality, which is a certain way of filling out our worldview, our beliefs, our attitudes, and our actions on that basis. And we're trying to communicate that to and persuasively advocate that to people who have a different way of filling out spirituality. They have their alternative spirituality. Um, we want to ourselves and encourage other people to judge spirituality in terms of the transcendental values. Asking questions about, well, is it really true? Is it really good? Is it really beautiful? And to advocate Christian spirituality as being true and good and beautiful. And to do that, to communicate that well, this is sort of the theor theoretical over here through to the practical over there, we communicate our belief, beliefs judged by truth, communicate that through good logos, through good reasons, arguments, evidence. Um, communicate our attitudes, why do we have certain attitudes and things that we have attitudes towards, we want to try and communicate to other people that those things are worth having those attitudes towards because they really are beautiful, really are attractive, really are worthwhile and meaningful and so on. We communicate that through good pathos. And then of course at the top here, our actions, our, our sort of ethics, applied ethics and so on, um, judged by objective goodness, communicating that in particular through our own character as ambassadors for Christ uh, we're not simply a messenger you know, don't shoot the messenger we are an ambassador of Christ a representative of Christ to the people that we meet um, it is um, a weighty honour um, one that I think we can only stand up um, under uh, under the knowledge that we're forgiven by grace um, and that that uh, encourages us to um, to improve, to develop spiritually, putting on the nature of Christ and so on, to become better in all of these areas of the whole spectrum of life as Francis Schaeffer says um, there we go so that's what I have to say about uh, spirituality and uh, apologetics and so on Sorry, Peter. You said yeah. understand is stand under the truth. Uh, understand. Yes. To, yes. To understand is to stand under truth. the truth. Okay. Uh, to stand under 
um, reality as being that which shapes what we believe. Um, you can distinguish, like um, Aristotle, like Thomas Aquinas did, when we talk about the truth, there's one sense of the truth, which is the facts of the matter. You know, the cat is on the mat. There's the fact of the matter that the cat is on the mat. Okay, that's the facts. That's the truth, in one sense. Um, if I have the belief the cat is on the mat, then my belief is true. But uh, it's true because it's, it's true of the reality which it's about. It corresponds to the reality. So we can, we can in one sense, say a belief is true or false, but that, that means we're saying it's, it's true to or not true to the way things really are. Yeah? Grand. Good question. Uh, so I can move on from, from that. Look. Um, 55, we're coming up to lunchtime. You can, I mean, you can always go either go straight to give your, your neurons time to settle into a new bit of information and so on and have a relax and a lee break and some food before we come back to a different sort of topic. So if we um, break now you can go to a toilet and we'll find some food. And yeah, yeah, upstairs where you have the coffee on the table I noticed there's some plastic bags. Yeah. Yeah. That'll be them. Great.